When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Smart Talk series, a Henry George School of Social Science podcast. The Smart Talk series is a weekly podcast with an array of discussions held with academics, policymakers, practitioners, and other professionals to explore new ideas and theories within the economics field. Our discussion today came from our archives and was recorded in March of 2020. Our talk is hosted by Ed Dodson, who is joined by our guest, Alana Hardzog. Ms. Hardzog is a longtime environmental activist and ethicist. She received her bachelor's degree from Ohio Wesleyan University and her graduate degree from the University of West Georgia, both in psychology. She is the author of The Earth Belongs to Everyone, a collection of essays that explores how democracy can be used to achieve environmental rights. Ms. Hardzog is also the author of Democracy, Earth Rights, and the Next Economy, an influential essay on the environmental ethics and their role within the economy. Alana is currently an administrator at the International Union for Land Value Tax and co-director of the Earth Rights Institute, a nonprofit organization that focuses on land rights and land value taxation. Together, we discuss the Green New Deal and its potential flaws, how a land value tax could help fund such a project, and the need for a fundamental macroeconomic restructuring towards a more inclusive framework that considers the environment. We hope you enjoyed this talk, and please make sure to check back on our page every week for a brand new episode. Thank you, Ed. I'm happy to be on Smart Talk. Uh, Green New Deal really became a kind of a buzz phrase uh, once Alexandra, House of Representative Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez presented a resolution to the House of Representatives that recognizes the duty of the federal government to create a Green New Deal. Now, usually it's it's there's Green New Deals popping up here and there. A lot of people are talking about it, and usually what they focus is on is the need to get off of carbon sources of energy and onto renewable energy sources. It's the great big energy shift to address climate change. But her resolution, which is about 14 pages long, uh, is, is much more than that. It draws from the, the New Deal and the social programs and amplifies them of, of FDR. And it is a vision of a 10-year mobilization that she equates to the kind of mobilization we had to go through for World War II. So she doesn't mention war on poverty, but that's certainly implicated because along with the the whereases that look at all the catastrophes, current and potential, due to climate change, her whereas statements include a very long list of the uh, economic uh, insecurities of the people of the United States, of the inequities, uh, of the lack of basic needs for, for clean air, clean water, food, and shelter. So it's a, it's a very big picture. She's painting for a major shift on all levels, uh, economically and environmentally, 
from local to the global level. But she sees the United States as bearing particular responsibility to gear up these uh, climate reduction and social justice programs because of our pollution in the world that we have created 20% of the uh, pollution that's causing the, the driver for climate change. So she's uh, preparing to uh, lead the charge to step up responsibility of the federal government. Now, it's a big wish list, Ed, like I said, and uh, it includes uh, retooling all of the built environment. I mean, she wants every building to be fixed up so that it's more climate prepared and uh, based on uh, renewable energy. Uh, and then she ends with everybody in the United States to have high quality health care, affordable, safe housing, economic security, and within the documents, it's high paying jobs for all, and along with the clean air, clean water, food, and so on. But you see, the, the, the main uh, problem I have, and I think uh, that many have is that it, it's weak on how do you fund this huge transformation? Uh, it's very weak on that, Ed. Well, the practical challenge of the political environment we have today makes a real question as to whether or not, even with a Demo Democratic majority in the U.S. House of Representatives, is there a real possibility for the Green New Deal being passed you know, in the Congress and signed by the next president of the United States. I see uh, not really much chance of that. And, and this is why. It's because of this huge political divide that's blocking anything that seems to want to move us forward. Uh, and the two different philosophies or narratives about how to have an economy work where the left would still have uh, a big finance from government and the right wants to have small government. So those are the kinds of things that make it prohibitive to passing legislation. Uh, there, there's some things that the federal government could possibly do, though. Uh, but one of the biggest things that, that she has not addressed in terms of potential funding is a shift of funds from the military budget. Now, there's a recent very excellent study done by uh, professors at Lancaster University and Dunham University, and they are telling us that the U.S. military is a bigger polluter than as many as 140 countries. And they are telling us that the American military's uh, climate policies uh, are very minimal on any kinds of environmental improvements. And again, that the largest institutional consumer of hydrocarbons in the world is the U.S. military. She does not even mention that. Uh, so I want to just read a little bit from their documents, uh, ending statement, but all of the uh, research is online. They say that our study shows that action on climate change demands shuttering vast sections of the military machine. There are few activities on Earth as environmental catastrophic as waging war. It does no good tinkering on the edges of the war machine's environmental impact. The money spent procuring and distributing fuel across the U.S. empire could instead be sent, 
spent as a peace dividend helping to fund a new Green Deal. Uh, maybe it's just too much of a third rail to talk about military spending and reallocations in the Congress. Uh, maybe it is seen, which it is as a jobs program. Maybe she didn't want to take that on. I don't know why. Uh, but we certainly have to address that issue of huge military bootprint on the environment. And then there's a few other things that the uh, uh, federal government could do uh, to get more funding for at least some of the things on, uh, on this new, new Green Deal wish list. And one is our federal lands are a huge amount of the landmass of the United States, well over one third. And there's a lot of mining and extraction and lumbering on our federal lands. And we know that it's not being done at full cost pricing. It's way below uh, cost. We should significantly increase the lease fees for any sorts of for-profit use on our federal lands. Another big issue, uh, and she does not mention, that we have multi-billions of dollars in subsidies to largely private sector corporations and largely the carbon industry. Uh, the Green Scissors programs used to look a lot about subsidy cuts. We really need to, again, address that issue. Stop funding the things that are bad or that creates monopolies and wealth inequality. So end the subsidies. One of the thoughts that occurs to me as you speak is that in the United States, one of the challenges politically is that every, every city, every state competes with one another for jobs. And the military jobs are just one source of that employment. And so almost no congressman is going to vote to close down a military base in their uh, district because of the, the potential you know, fallout politically that that might occur. And you know, when you talked about the federal resources, we have the whole issue of states, particularly out in the West, where a large percentage of the land is in the public domain and the federal government, and the states are, are really working hard to try to get control of that land uh, to, to use for their own purposes. These are, these are really complex political issues, and I don't, I'm not asking you to offer a solution, but it seems to me that they are really tremendous challenges uh, in the face of all the objective science that you've been referring to all the objective analysis that's there, um, it is going to be a tremendous challenge, even if the, the Democratic Party might gain control of both the House and Senate. Uh, but maybe that's the best opportunity we will have in a long time, or at least the Green New Deal will have. The thought and the vision certainly comes comes first before the action, and she is creating a, an important vision, so I want to give a lot of credit for that. The, the public dialogue is now using the term New Green Deal quite a bit. In terms of military jobs, Ed, I mean, there has for decades been work done on how you shift the military into, into jobs that create things that are beneficial. Uh, military cleaning up the environment, uh, repairing environmental degradation, the military creating the industry, driving the industry, building the renewable technologies, the solar, wind, and so on. So I think that we just were to retool the repurpose, if you will, 
the military budget. And we can still keep those jobs because this is a crisis that we're in on many levels. And we do need uh, good uh, public goods and services to repair so much infrastructure that needs repaired so that we have clean water. Uh, but they, she does address agriculture and she does address the need for small farms. Uh, the uh, addresses the need that, that we should have freedom from, from monopoly businesses. And so I think there's a place in her uh, resolution here for the New Green Deal for an emphasis on how we to get small businesses working better to, to, to build the things that we need and to provide this, the, the, the housing that we need. Um, the business sector uh, is there. Uh, she has a, 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 a big emphasis, though, on empowering labor, on increasing labor unions, uh, power, once again. Uh, she talks about uh, systemic uh, just injustice. So she's aware there's a need for systemic change, and she doesn't use the words, but a new economics uh, I think that's another rallying point that people can agree with when we when we uh, are aware of the enormous wealth inequality in the world and in the United States. So I think that the Henry George School teaches, and and the reason we're here today under the banner of the Henry George School is that there is a clear third way for a new economics beyond the old right and the old left. It's not a conversation of small or big government. It's a conversation about what is really uh, the purpose of government on a much deeper level. Uh, and we can take it there. And I'd like to address some of those key concerns today in terms of a narrative. The, uh, the mantra of activism has always been think globally, act locally. And certainly, you know, your involvement with uh, the International Union is, is a global involvement, but you're also very involved with the, the effort to get land value taxation adopted by local communities. <laughs> and certainly in the political environment today, we see that mayors are some of the people who are the most concerned about all of the problems that, that have been identified in the Green New Deal uh, analysis. And so I guess the question is for you, do you see evidence of real progress anywhere in cities? Uh, I, I, I think cities are beginning to realize they're going to have to take charge because of the political blockage on the federal level and and as you will, uh, even on the state levels. Uh, I did want to bring to everyone's attention when we uh, talk about how do we get the new Green Deal down to the city level is uh, a really good opinion piece. Uh, it's called Introducing the Maryland New Green Deal, and it was put out by Owen Silverman Andrews. He's a co-chair of the Baltimore City Green Party. So his main points are... Uh, he includes the problem of the military contamination sites in Maryland and in Baltimore. So he is one that would clearly see the need for shifting the purpose of the military in the state of Maryland and in, in the city of Baltimore. Uh, he wants to have uh, reforms in the democratic process itself. He wants any candidate to to list and put on their campaign material if they have any funding from the carbon industry. He 
I think that's a great idea. People, the, the candidates should really say where their funding is coming from in detail. That should be very transparent. Uh, he sees a need for 100% renewable energy by 2032. For some reason, that's a number a lot of people are picking up on. And he is so serious about it, he meaning the uh, co-chair of the Green Party of, of Maryland and Baltimore, that he would have uh, the ability of eminent domain that any facilities, any assets, any companies that have not shifted off of a big carbon footprint onto renewables by 2032, that those assets would be confiscated and repurposed. That sounds rather drastic, but we're up against a, a rather drastic situation in terms of the environment, climate change, and the need to have uh, renewable energy jobs and uh, industries that serve the people's basic needs for food, shelter, housing, education, and health care. Many of those concerns can be addressed by a very fundamental public tax reform on the city level. In fact, there's a, a great power for taxes that can drive incentives in the direct directions that we want. Uh, there's a, 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 I wish that both the Maryland Green Party's New Deal, Green New Deal uh, thinking, and uh, the Green New Deal federal legislation by Ocasio-Cortez, I wish they were aware of a very important uh, OECD uh, paper on financing green urban infrastructure. So green urban infrastructure, OECD. It goes very deeply into financing mechanisms for essentially what could be a big part of a Green New Deal. And in that is a focus on property tax. As we know, that's been a traditionally large source of, of public finance for our, our cities and towns. And he says, I mean, they see, this is quite a few academics put this paper together, financing green urban infrastructure, that we should definitely shift the property tax off of buildings and housing so that people can feel free of taxes in order to create the infrastructure that we need and the housing that we need and shift it onto the land value component of the property tax. Right. There is an right. understanding that the increase in land value is created by the community as a whole. It's increased when we have schools and clean water and libraries and all the good basic public services that a society needs and values. All of these things uh, that uh, result in positive assets and, and, and further the public good increase land value in the locations that are serviced. So these are community or publicly created resources, resource values attached to the value of land. I mean, it's very simple to understand. If you have children, people often want to live near where there are good schools. They will even pay more if they can afford it to buy housing if it's near good schools. But that increase in that land value of the housing that we're paying, that they're willing to pay for, is because of the public finance school system and other basic goods like safety. So the movement, which can be done by a city government uh, making a decision to, to tax their property towards collecting this unearned income that accrues to the land base 
rather than the good things of people's labor, wages, income, their housing, their improvements of their housing, really can have a lot of positive benefits overall in driving the incentives correctly, uh, having a, a denser, better use of land in the urban urban areas, which can better than fund a, um, a public transportation and the other kinds of energy infrastructure so that you don't have cities sprawling out and spilling out of their boundaries when there's there's good land within the city boundary that should be better utilized. This land value tax approach uh, removes the land speculation and the land hoarding incentives completely. There's no more making a killing in real estate, which is, frankly, capturing an unearned income created by the, the society as a whole. There's an important uh, example of this in many cities, but I'd like to address what we know about Baltimore. In the poorest areas of Baltimore, the, the land and hence the building, uh, buildings and the apartments are owned by people who don't live there. They live in other wealthier counties, not the city of Baltimore. But the renters are paying substantially high rents, uh, up to 50% at least, sometimes more, of their income is going to housing. So we know this is a, a huge wealth inequality issue and that housing cannot currently be secured by the many uh, with their current purchasing capacity. So tax reform that removes the income tax especially the lower, all the lower levels and the middle class level, will increase purchasing capacity for housing. And policies that collect more of this land rent via the land value tax, land value-based capture, it's called by many names. I like to call it a commons rent because the land value is a commons. It's created by the community. It should be recycled back to the community to fund community needs, and it is a huge amount. So back to Baltimore, poor neighborhoods, their rents, and a large part is the land rent, is being extracted by wealthy landowners that live elsewhere. You might think of it as a form of an internal, internal colonialism. We know colonialism means that outside forces, companies, peoples, extract resources from other countries at way below a fair price. And that is what's happening in Baltimore and our other cities and the poor neighbors. They are extracting what should belong to the community. It's internal there's colonialism. A, there's an analogy in this, this, this situation. It actually could be described as a sort of urban sharecropping. I mean, we know what happened in the South to minority farmers who who lost ownership of land and and were paying, you know, uh, rent or a portion of their crop to grow to grow crops on land owned by others. Well, the same thing occurs when you are paying rent uh, for uh, housing to live in, and you're paying to an absentee owner, and their primary motivation is to generate as much cash flow as they can without putting any money into repairing the property or keeping it up. I mean, that's that's pretty common throughout the country and in in many many cities and communities. And what's what's really amazing to me 
uh, is the statistic on the number of working people who are homeless and are living in tent cities across mm-hmm. the country. There are about a mm-hmm. hundred different tent cities existing in the United States around every metropolitan area. And, and it's a real tragedy. And I think the, the solution that you've pointed out to is one that requires education, which is what we do at the Henry George School. It requires civic engagement. It requires leadership uh, in order to get this accomplished. So I guess, you know, the question that might be raised is, do we have enough time to get it done before we begin to experience some of the worst consequences of how we've organized ourselves? And in particular, you you know, mentioned the concentration of income and of wealth in this country. Uh, we do need a starting point. And I think you're right. The taxation of land values, the exemption of property improvements is perhaps a way to get the dominoes falling in the right direction so that we can begin to find solutions to some of the the most serious problems that are described in the New Deal program. Well, the time is of the essence, surely. Uh, but the narrative of what the problem is needs to get clear so that we can have the action that follows the aha uh, understanding of what the root problem really is. Now, you you mentioned sharecropping, and I think that's a good analogy, Ed, because a sharecropper was giving 50% of the crop to the landowner, as high as 50%, and interestingly enough, uh, uh, poor people are paying as much as 50% of their income to uh, landlords, often, almost always absentee landlords, or if they're trying to purchase a place to live, they are uh, giving a huge amount in uh, mortgage payments to a bank. Uh, the sharecropping takes us back to what I think I'd like to mention as, as a crucial insight and how we got to where we are. And let's go back to the American Civil War and the issue of slavery and with that focus to focus on the land problem. Because land value tax is a way to solving a problem that many don't understand at a very deep level. So what do we mean by the land problem? It's the fact that a few own most of the land and resources in the United States, in each state. For instance, Florida, 1% owns two-thirds of the private land. And that's the easy way to see it. But the other, the other part of the land problem is that the, the price of land goes up faster than the return to wages, the return to work, so that we're always in this uh, rat race of trying to keep up, working longer, harder, and now two or three jobs, and now you can have a job and you still can't have your housing. After the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation that freed people from enslavement, which is the worst kind of, the very property of a, a body is now controlled, uh, there was a big uh, conversation about uh, land reform for the South. Uh, Thaddeus Stevens was bringing this forward in Congress, and it was often called 40 acres and a mule. The mule was the energy, the power source, and the 40 acres was how do you equitably have a land share for the free people and the poor, poor whites, everybody that was landless was going to have an opportunity to have a small farm. 
a Jeffersonian democracy based on small land holdings. Now, just imagine what a very different country we would be if that had been enacted. But it was prevented in large part by northern factory owners who thought that, oh, if we have the land rights and land reform for the South, our workers might think they should have some land and we might lose our wage slaves. So it's the northern factory owners that very much put the kibosh on 40 acres and a mule. We had people then into the shareholding, and then when industrial jobs opened in the northern cities, we had African Americans flee to these cities for those jobs. When those jobs closed down, they became actually imprisoned in a way in the inner cities. We had the band-aids of our social welfare programs to try to keep people alive. As they're being cut back, there's less and less availability for food. There's more hunger in the United States. There's the homelessness, as you mentioned. And in fact, our, our, our longevity, the past few years, we people in the United States are living shorter lives. So the land problem, which was never addressed when the country was founded. So I would propose that we, we see the vision as a new form of democracy not a democracy meaning neoliberal capitalism, which we know we have to find a way beyond. Talk about mobilization. We need the clarity to form a new form of democracy, some called economic democracy. I like the phrase earth rights democracy. And earth rights democracy means property rights on the earth is an equal right by birthright for each and every one of us by birthright. It's not by labor. We have a right by birthright to the gifts of nature. And two earthrights means that we have a responsibility to care for and protect our ecological systems. That's usually understood, the environmental issues, and actually is becoming codified that there is a crime called ecocide. But the genocide, which means this terrible deprivations of people, the genocide, it doesn't just mean, mean, mean murdering people. It means, it means degrading the human race. So we're experiencing, I want to say it sounds strong, but a form of genocide in the United States that's dragging us down into what's been third world status rather than raising us and the third world people to uh, a system of basic security through all, through what we can all provide given access to nature. Housing, food, water, all of these things human beings can readily supply through our intelligence and through our labor. You know, I, a bird knows how to build a nest. It doesn't even have technology. It uses a beak and it builds an amazing nest, which is perfectly adequate shelter for its family. And we can't do the same? What's the difference? The bird has free access to sticks and twigs and muds. It has free access to the gifts of nature. We need a democracy that gives us the rights to Mother Earth. So if you take this perennial wisdom teaching that Henry George simply rediscovered, that we know goes back in civilizations that thrived over thousands of years, there are 
heights and depths of civilizations rising and collapsing. And you know what they found out? And I think you know, and other people who are involved with the Henry George economics knows, that there was even a form of land value tax back in ancient Greece, five and 6,000 years ago. And in that ancient part of the world, there was thriving, I'm sorry, not ancient Greece, it was the Indus River Valley civilization. Indus River Valley. The uh, reason I say Greece is because it's a Greek researcher that, that uh, put together the research in the book on the Vedic teachings around economics. And he was surprised to discover land value tax thousands of years ago in the very advanced civilization of the Indus River Valley that had the infrastructure for clean, clean water and piped water and all kinds of, uh, of, of social needs were well met and even gender balance in terms of leadership, of co-sharing of power of men and women. Um, when you look at the historical story that you've presented and you apply that to the history of the United States, I mean, really, our problems go back to the creation of the country. Uh, I often say that um, the DNA of Americans is, is uh, strongly uh, filled with the tendency to speculate in land because there was so much land that was empty and people wanted to get their piece of the rock. George Washington, most of the founding fathers were, were, were great land speculators. Some of them made great fortunes uh, from land speculation, others did not. But during the Constitutional Convention, during the time when the country was being formed, there was a serious discussion about how revenue ought to be raised and whether or not we ought to, country ought to adopt the land, land value tax. And the, the problem that occurred, the argument against it was that the, if the states were assigned to value their land, then their interest would be to undervalue it so that they would have to contribute less revenue to the federal government. And Hamilton argued that the federal government did not have the technical ability or the resources to value land. So instead, they went off on the other direction and taxed people's you know, income, taxed uh, ex imports and exports. And basically, that set the stage for the rest of our history as a country in terms of tax policy. We've been fighting to try to return to the original debate ever since, it seems, with vested interests so strongly opposed to doing the right thing. And, and when we talk about cities like Baltimore, for example, the work that you're doing in, in Baltimore and others are doing in Baltimore and other cities, it seems to me that what, what occurs is that the, the leading leaders in those cities don't make the right decision until they've tried everything else. It's like, we're going to try everything else, and when none of that works, well, maybe then we'll try something that really will work, and that might be land value taxation. It's kind of an irony, I think, in terms of the conflict with our logic and our reasoning and how we reach decisions. Uh, it is certainly a challenge, and you've, you're one of the people who's accepted it. Uh, I would assume that much of what you've discussed in the last you know, 10 or 15 minutes is in your book. I, and we would encourage uh, viewers to get hold of, of your book and, and, and read it thoroughly and study it thoroughly. Um, 
let let me move on to just a little bit of a, of a discussion of the work that you've been doing with the United Nations and and some of the impact that your work with the UN has had through the International Union for Land Value Taxation. Do you see progress internationally? And is that progress um, advancing at a better pace than in the United States? United Nations, as we know, is great at um, looking at problems, defining problems, and we're actually having consensus documents, impressive documents about how to solve those problems. Uh, but the UN does not have the power or the authority. It's, it's not a, a, a government that can force anything. It can really only recommend. Uh, but it does have, uh, after the five global conferences of conferences of the 1990s and, and the, those conferences that looked at how you saw some major problems in many areas, they realized that, very good, how do you fund? So they started a funding for development, funding for sustainable development focused discussion and track. Now, within the United Nations Habitat, UNCHS uh, agency, uh, Habitat had uh, realized that for their goals of repairing uh, cities and funding infrastructure in cities and greening cities, uh, that they needed to focus on land issues in the urban areas. And out of that came uh, a section of UN Habitat called the Global Land Tool Network. Now, both within the founding documents of UN Habitat and uh, then the Global Land Tool Network, uh, the, the official documents include the land value capture and the land value-based financing as important policies for funding these uh, green infrastructure and other basic needs for cities. Uh, I think that they could have done a better job at some of the technical details and how to do so, but the, the point is the uh, identification of the land problem is there in the documents and uh, direction towards uh, land value based taxes and land value tax solutions are there. And these, these are now endorsed by consensus of all members of the UN General Assembly. So it's up to us to then uh, provide the, the the direction and the guidance as, as to how you exactly implement this policy. So what we're doing at the International Union for Land Value Tax is first increasing our leadership base, and we have uh, a board, uh, a, a, a council that has uh, people from about 22 countries now. So these are countries uh, in all continents. So it is interesting how the ideas are spread around the world, but they're spread rather thin. So we certainly need to mobilize in education and activism of movements for uh, beyond right-left taxation policy that addresses both uh, efficiency and the needs for equality, that addresses wealth inequality at its source. Uh, so we have put together some documents. It's called Research for Land Value Tax Implementation. It's addressed to mayors and, and public, uh, uh, public officials, and they can sign on to a program with us where we will uh, uh, provide consultancy to give them initial guidance and recommendations for how to implement this policy in their own uh, cities. So I'm happy to provide those documents to anyone who asks for them and to, to work with them 
as they are able to get their city's mayors to uh, sign on for a research project. And now you ask, where is the movement maybe strongest? And I'm wondering, do we have a bit of time to talk about some examples of how this has worked in the United States, where I'm most familiar? We certainly do. We do. Well, well, first, as we mentioned, the land reform for the South, I'd like to mention an area and a policy in California that created a magnificent land reform for a number of decades. And I'll also say why it's no longer operational today. But in California, there was uh, a land owner that owned a massive amount, I mean, a million acres or more of land in the uh, uh, Central Valley of California. Uh, there was a school teacher who understood the land value tax and was elected, got himself elected to the state legislature and got this legislation passed, whereby the financing for the water infrastructure for the irrigation uh, to make that Central Valley land fertile uh, would be paid for out of a land value tax. So the state would tax the land values fully, and those funds would be channeled into funding that irrigation infrastructure. And they even formed local irrigation districts that would look at exactly how to do this and that would receive the funding benefits for their infrastructure. So the large landowner was going to pay quite a bit more to hold his lands as his private fiefdom. And he started selling off massive amounts of his land holdings such that uh, small-sized and medium-sized farmers were actually able to afford to purchase land. Once the land reform happened, you had a lot of productive farming happen in the Central Valley, irrigated uh, financed uh, systems out of the land value, and the spinoffs were thriving communities, diversified economies. Uh, Studies have shown the great difference between the corporate agriculture lands in that area and these small farmlands in that area of California, uh, all qualities of life indicators showed the small farm areas had the good living. And the saw, I mean, the, you, you can just imagine the, the large corporate agriculture, it's just like a form of slavery. And those cities is like buying from those towns, it's like buying from the company store. There's not a diversified economic base. So why did this not thrive? And I'll tell you why. And here it uh, gets into our banking structures. The first lien on the land went to the bank. In other words, if you didn't pay the land value tax, your land did not revert to the local community. It did not revert so that people could afford to buy it. It went to paying off the mortgage on the bank. So the bank had the first lien on the lands. But under the right act, the first lien on the land went to the community. So the bank, big banks, took this to the Supreme Court three times until they succeeded in axing out the local finance irrigation systems of the Central Valley of California. And we now have federally subsidized irrigation systems for corporate agriculture. So you see how we see the land value problem, the land problem, uh, corporate agriculture, subsidies, 
kind of all rolled into one. But when you focus, look at the land problem, the money problem, and taxation, you can see how it all fits. For viewers who might have a uh, desire to do some research, um, you might might want to, well, uh, we could probably point them to some of the research and writing that was done by Mason Gaffney, an, an economics professor at the University of California who's written extensively about water rights in California and about the Right Act. So we, we might we might point uh, people to that That's research right. to find more information. Right. I drew quite a bit from Mason's work uh, when I was working to get the state of Pennsylvania uh, to pass enabling legislations for land value tax for the thousand boroughs of the state, because the um, uh, Association for for Agriculture and the Pennsylvania Agricultural Association wanted to know how it would impact farmers. So I had to do a very I did a very large research paper. It's about fifty pages that I presented at a hearing in Harrisburg. So that's also a nice, succinct uh, article about Mason DeGaffney's work on how a land value tax actually drives small farm agriculture, which is more efficient than corporate agriculture. So maybe back to Pennsylvania now a little more. Uh, Harrisburg, our state capital, uh, was uh, considered in 1979 the third, the second most distressed city in the United States. Only East St. Louis was worse. Uh, they had 5,000 boarded up buildings. Now, this is a small city of 50,000. So they were one of those uh, municipalities, Ed, where you say that the city government said, well, we've tried everything else. Let's try this. We're desperate. So someone came to the mayor at the time, Mayor Reed, and described the policy and to the city council, and they said, okay, let's try it. What they began was to remove taxes from the houses, from the buildings, and in a revenue neutral, not even a tax increase, they shifted their tax base onto land value. For example, what happened if you're a, 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 a speculator with a boarded up building, and now you're going to pay more? for your property tax because it's just based on your land value well what happened is this you either become a good working capitalist and hire local labor and put together everything you need to then build a housing on that site so you could get some rental income so you could pay the land value tax or you're going to sell it to people who are willing to put those sites and able to then build those sites and put them to good use. So we went from about 5,000 boarded up buildings to, in a few years, just a, a few hundred boarded up buildings. It was really working. Every time they saw it was working, they increased the split. They took more taxes off of the buildings, off of the houses, and, and instead increased it on the land value. It was working so well, newspaper stories were saying, we don't know how the city government and the mayor is doing this, but we're having more housing supply. We're having a decreased crime rate because they had a problem with crime and they had a problem with arson. Decreased crime and arson rates. And now we're having funding for uh, parks and for better protective services for the city. Uh, so this, Ed, was just within a property tax reform in one city, and the mayor began winning a number of awards. Now, he made a, a very bad mistake, 
and he's no longer mayor, but he was over 20 years while this was happening. He had the idea that Harrisburg should be a museum capital of the East Coast. And so he, what some of us would say, kind of misspent or misallocated funds. And there was a problem with the city budget. But another big problem, they kept trying to get this incinerator to work, an incinerator that was piling millions of dollars and not working. And that really busted the city budget. So they need to get back on track. For Harrisburg, but it's a great model of how you can revitalize a city with a local tax reform. Does the we have the, another the, city to talk about? But is go the ahead. current mayor supportive of land value taxation in Harrisburg? Uh, I, I I don't think uh, to the degree that Mayor Reed did because uh, we we're not hearing anything about progress there. Progress would mean that they would be also working to get their. Um, School system funded through land value tax. The school system is still on the old property tax. And that's a big part of the property taxes, school taxes. And we need enabling legislation for school districts to have this form of tax policy. So Harrisburg civic, civic government should be working with the state legislature to enable them to do that. And, and I'm not hearing about it. Uh, but there is a success story in our third largest city, which is Allentown, Pennsylvania. And this is pretty interesting because they developed one. They wanted a home rule charter. This means that they have more powers uh, to act as a city government than they would without their home rule charter. That We had someone in city council then who understood land value tax and there was also a big movement to educate the people about it. This led to the Home Rule Charter say, stating that the all other taxes would be frozen or reduced. The only tax that could be increased would be a land value tax. Wow, that's quite, wow. That's quite an initiative. That was quite an initiative. You're right. And there was a few that didn't like this approach. They were the owners of 50 acres of mostly vacant land used only a few weeks a year for a, 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 a fair, right. but terribly poorly utilized land. Those owners, is probably speculation scheme, were against it. And the owners of single-level parking lots and car dealerships that are also poor land use in our urban centers. So these people had enough wealth to launch a campaign against this. They even had a lot of media, but they had little airplanes flying with banners. They forced a vote to try to vote out the land value component, land value test component of the Home Rule Charter. And guess what? People were going door to door, advocates for the policy, showing homeowners how much less they would pay in property tax under land value tax than under the current property tax system. So through enlightened self-interest on a number of levels and education and activism, Allentown passed totally that, that, that rule for land value tax policy. Now, the comparisons have been made between how Allentown was doing compared to Bethlehem, a similar city nearby, they had a lot of federal subsidies compared to Allentown, who didn't have the federal subsidies. What we saw was that the building permits, the housing developments, the housing, affordable housing uh, being built in Allentown and other good infrastructure was increasing significantly more rapidly than in this subsidized city of Bethlehem. So I think it's a great story, both of 
local control, of local empowerment, of uh, not really needing federal subsidies. If you have federal subsidies, you have improvements. It will increase land values under the current system, and it will be the landowners and the speculators who profit. Which is why when you hear a federal government's going to subsidize anything or going to build any infrastructure, you have speculators coming and buying up land so that they can benefit from the increase in the land value caused by the public expenditure. So if we have any public expenditure on a Green New Deal, Ed, we absolutely have to have it have this recycling of the increase in the land value or the community socially created land rent that's caused by public finance. Now, the Green New Deal is for 10 years. It's a 10-year mass mobilization. But if it, we went ahead with it as currently structured and somehow found a massive amount of money from the federal government for the Green New Deal, who's going to benefit under the current macroeconomic neoliberal system, it will be the large landowners, the owners of valuable land sites, and the banks that we will have to pay increasing mortgage to to afford the increasing land value. So we can't have a Green New Deal without macroeconomic restructuring at a big fundamental level addressing the land problem, money problem, yes, and uh, taxation. Oh, what a lot to absorb, Alana. You've done a great job of trying to give us a, a, a story that really should be highlighted in the mainstream media, and it has to reach a larger, larger audience so people are really aware of what is going on in our economy and in our society. And it's, it's clear that people really don't understand. Um, those who manage to find their way to the Henry George School, they get some insight and they get some awareness but uh, we need to get this message that you've given us today out to a much larger audience. And let's hope that, um, that many of them will find their way to this Smart Talk interview and, <laughs> and, and then reach out and, and contact you and, and contact at the school for more information. So I really appreciate the time you've taken uh, to spend You're with You're welcome. But you know what? I'm going to interrupt you to tell you a little good news. We're seeing increasing... Uh, media, increasing articles on land value tax. We're seeing more and more uh, policy experts saying we've got to look at this. And we're even seeing this wonderful uh, online radio program called Real News Network in Baltimore. We've had a couple different people, Josh Vincent and others, being interviewed by Real News Network. And we're really happy because there's a lot of people that are looking at the problem of militarization and the environment and Real News Network now seeing that, hey, there must be something here to this land value tax. So I also recommend people uh, go to those Real News, Real News Network programs and, yes, contact uh, the Henry George School and uh, the International Union for Land Value Taxes revamping our website. It should be updated soon. So there is lots of resources and it is a growing movement. We're still kind of small, but we're mighty, Ed. So thank you for having me on Smart Talk today. And that's it for this week's episode of Smart Talk. Thank you for listening, and we hope it made you think. If you'd like to learn more about our research, check out hgsss.org. That's hgsss.org. If you'd like to listen to our content as soon as it's published, subscribe to our show. If you like our show, please leave us a rating, review, or even share it with a friend. 
it goes a long way. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.